Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. 11 tests of saving faith. It's possible for you to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but in reality, you not be one. In fact, Jesus said... In Matthew 7, many, not a few, not some, but many will say to me on that day, and he's talking about the judgment day, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So these people clearly thought they were Christians. Hence, God commands us through the Apostle Paul that we must examine ourselves to see if indeed we are in the faith. And so there are 11 tests in 1 John that help us to determine if indeed we are Christians. I believe that as a Christian, you should see some evidence of these 11 tests of saving faith. Depending on your spiritual maturity will depend how much of these you might see. You might see more of one than another, more of several than another. But I believe there should be some glimmer of the reality of these tests in your life. And the reason that is so is because when Jesus comes into our life, and that's what happens when we become Christians, Jesus comes to live within us, and when Jesus comes to live within you, there must be some changes take place. There is no way the living Lord can indwell your life and you not show some evidences of Him being there. A changed life. So our assurance of our salvation is based on our faith and a changed life. And we're saved through faith and grace. So we're not talking about you get saved through doing these things. You don't. But because you are saved, these things should be seen in your life. I've used an example before. of It's like a cesspool. And if you were to drill right in the middle of that cesspool and reach down and get an artesian well of fresh water, and that fresh water would start flowing up in that cesspool. Now, gradually, the quality of that water would change. And if long enough time took place, that old cesspool would be replaced with that clean, fresh, artesian well water, and that cesspool would become a clear pool of water fit, fit to drink. Now, that's what happens when Jesus comes into our life. And we're the cesspool. He's artesian well. And when He comes to live within us, He brings His life within us, and there's got to be some changes take place in our life. Usually it's gradual, but there should be that evidence. And we're looking at the 11th test today, and we find it over in 1 John 4, verses 14 and 15. And the 11th test is, a person actively confesses that Jesus is his Savior and witnesses of this to others. Now, in respect for the Word of God, let me ask you to stand while I read verses 14 and 15. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, 
and he in God. You may be seated. Now, immediately in these two verses, John tells us two things. First, he tells us that he and the other apostles testify, bear witness to what they have personally seen in the life of Jesus, and that is that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. As these men lived with Jesus 24-7 during those few years, they observed Him firsthand. They saw the way He lived. They heard what He taught. They saw the miracles He performed. And their conclusion through the work of the Holy Spirit, after seeing and hearing and being with Jesus during this time, is that they understood that the Father God sent Jesus His Son to be the Savior of the world. And they could not help but testify to this truth. They could not contain themselves, even though it meant martyrdom. They could not be quiet. They had to tell the good news. Now the next verse, verse 15, tells us that those who have God abiding in them, and also who abide in God, will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. The evidence that we have a saving relationship with God is that we openly confess that Jesus is His unique Son, His only begotten Son. The truly born-again child of God cannot help but tell others about Jesus. Therefore, the eleventh test of saving faith is a person actively confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and witnesses of that truth to others. Now, what I want us to do is I want to show you the validity of this test by us looking at the imagery that the Bible gives of a person who becomes a Christian. There are some beautiful images that God gives us of what happens when a person becomes a Christian. And when you and I see what happens when a person becomes a Christian, what we're going to see is, how can that person not tell other people about it? And therefore, the test is valid. When God has done such a glorious miraculous work in the life of a person, that person cannot contain it. They must tell others what God has done. Now, the first picture is found over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Now, I will read these, and then let's go back and see exactly what Paul is telling us takes place when a person becomes a Christian. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What this verse tells us is that before a person becomes a Christian, they are in spiritual blindness. They are in spiritual darkness. That Satan has blinded them to the truth about God and Jesus. Paul says it's like Satan has put a veil in front of their eyes and they cannot see the truth of Jesus. They are blind. But what God does when He saves somebody is that just as when God was creating the world and it was in darkness and He said, let there be light, and light came forth, He comes to a person in spiritual blindness in spiritual darkness, and he says, let there be light. And that person's spiritual eyes are suddenly healed, opened, and they see spiritual truth as they've never seen it before. Like a person who's been blind all of their lives, suddenly being able to see. Imagine how marvelous that would be for the first time to see colors. For the first time to see a beautiful sunset. For the first time to see the autumn leaves. Imagine. It is even more dramatic when a person who is spiritually blind suddenly sees spiritual truth. That's why a person can sit in church for years. Can hear the gospel presented hundreds of times. And it not really makes sense to him. Now, he can comprehend the facts. Oh, there was a man named Jesus uh, who claimed to be God's son. Uh, He died on the cross. Uh, They may even say, yeah, yeah, he resurrected. But there is no true, deep comprehension of those facts. The reality of those truths do not hit the core of their being. It's only a head knowledge. There's not that deep comprehension. But then, when God says, let there be light. And all of us who are Christians, remember that moment, don't you? Let there be light. And all of a sudden, you realized, in a way you'd never realized before, that Jesus died for me. I mean me. Not just He died, but He died for me. And if I'd been the only person living, He still would have died for me. And you realize that God loves me. That God is calling me to to come to Him. That I need to have forgiveness of my sins. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And we realize that as never before. We see truth as we've never seen it before. It penetrates the deepest core of our being. It literally grabs us. Because we have seen. Like the man in John 8. All we can say is once I was blind, but now I can see And I have got to have Jesus. When that happens, how can you not tell people about it? If you were born physically blind, and suddenly at age 20, 25, 30, you became able to see physically, don't you think you would tell people about that? 
Man, you couldn't help but say, let me tell you what happened to me. That's the greatest doctor there is. So when God shines the light of the truth of the knowledge of Christ, who is the glory of God in our lives, how can we not tell people about that? The second image is being rescued from evil slavery. We see this over in Colossians 1.12 and 13, where it says, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He's talking about God. Rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, the word rescue, just in that word, carries the idea of utter darkness and misery. That we are in trouble. We need to get rescued. You know, you don't rescue people that aren't in trouble. I mean, you and I understand by just using the word rescue, you are saying that person needs to be delivered. They are in trouble and they need to be brought out of that trouble. But the Greek word is the same way. When we were in the domain of darkness... Now, that's Satan's domain. He's the prince of darkness. So the picture is that we were in Satan's dungeon, in the bondage of sin, under his control, in the deepest part of his dungeon, chained, in bondage, unable to free ourselves, in misery and wretchedness. Hopeless. And then God sent Jesus, who came and defeated the strong man and broke open the prison doors and came to the darkest cell in the dungeon and rescued us, picked us up, and carried us out of that domain of darkness and took us to be in His kingdom of light. Hallelujah. How can we not tell people about that? How can we who have been delivered from the dungeon of darkness in wretchedness and misery to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God, how can we not shout it from the rooftops? God has delivered me. Jesus has set me free. And then the third picture is moving from thirst to over. Flowing satisfaction. That's found over in John 7. Verses 37 and 38. Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow Rivers of living water. He was talking about the Holy Spirit who would come. Now here Jesus calls an invitation. There's only one qualification to receive this invitation. You need to thirst. Whoever thirsts. Thirst shows a need. When we're dehydrated and we need hydration... God puts within us the mechanism of thirst. Thirst signifies a need, and you realize you have the need. 
thirst is planted within every human being. We are made with a spiritual thirst. Someone has called it a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. We all come into this world thirsting for true satisfaction, true contentment, true happiness. It's built within us. It's because we were created to come and drink of the fountain of Jesus. God created every one of us to be those who come to the living fountain of Jesus Christ and, and drink freely from Him. He created us to drink of that living water where Jesus told the lady at the well, drink of the water that I give and you will never thirst again. But people are trying to satisfy that thirst with everything but Jesus. They're trying to satisfy it through a successful career. They're trying to satisfy it through material possessions. If I can just have a bigger house, a better car, better clothes, I'll be satisfied. They try to satisfy it, some through use of drugs. Some try to satisfy it through sex. Some try to satisfy it through popularity or prestige or power. But those are only temporary satisfactions. There's only one true satisfaction for that deepest longing of your soul. And Jesus is talking about it right here. If any one thirst, come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You see, being a Christian is recognizing that you thirst. And that nothing but Jesus can satisfy that thirst. You come to a place that you say, God, I've been trying to run things and I haven't done a good job. Maybe you have been into all kinds of seeking to satisfy your thirst in illicit ways. Maybe it's been through a career advancement, maybe whatever. But you realize this is not it. There's got to be more to life than this. And God has shown the light. And you realize what you need is Jesus. That you are created to come and drink of the living fountain of Jesus. And so you say, God, I don't want to live another day without Jesus. And I'm going to come and drink of Jesus. I want Him to be my all and in all. I want Him to be my very life. And we come and we drink of Jesus. And there is a soul satisfaction that we cannot explain. But deep in the crevices of our being, there is contentment for the first time. There's a sense of wholeness for the first time. We know we have come to the reason for our creation. To drink of Jesus. Now when somebody's dying of thirst, and they've been trying every way they know to satisfy that thirst, but it just won't be satisfied. 
And then they finally come to the true source of satisfaction and drink freely of that. How can they not talk about it? How can we not say, Jesus, I found satisfaction. I found the purpose for my life. Jesus. He is my life. My all in all. How can we not tell people about it? And then a fourth figure or image that the Scripture gives of being a Christian is going from death to life. That's found over Ephesians chapter 2. First, Paul talks about our condition before we became a Christian. First thing is dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, death in itself, by definition, means an inability to respond. Right? You, a corpse will not respond. You can threaten it any way you want to, and it will not respond. Now, I am convinced if I was totally unscrupulous, I could make every one of you in here do what I wanted you to do if I applied enough pressure and the right pressure. It might be threatened to kill your loved ones, but whatever. If enough pressure is applied, we'll probably give in. That won't work on a corpse. A corpse is not able to respond. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. It means you're not able to respond to God. That's our condition. When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, first we're dead, next look, we're disobedient, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. We were disobedient to God. We went our way. We did what we wanted to do. Not only that, but we were depraved. Look in verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Not only were we dead and disobedient and depraved, but we were doomed and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's our condition. Doomed, disobedient, depraved, dead. But look what God did. First, He made us alive together with Christ. But God, being rich in His mercy, because of His great love for which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. It's grace because we didn't do anything to deserve it. We were dead, remember? We couldn't do anything. But He caused us to come alive. He brought us back to life so that we might see and respond to the truth. Not only did He make us alive with Christ, but look, He empowers us and raised us up with Him. The same resurrection power that brought Christ alive from the dead is the same resurrection power that God uses to bring you and I alive from spiritual death. He empowers us to live the Christian life. Not only that, but He exalts us and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We who are Christians are seated with Christ in heavenly places, even while we're walking around down here. Now, don't pretend to understand all of that. But I believe it, because the Scripture says it. But not only that, but He preserves us. Look in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
You see, when you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, He's not going to kick you out. You can't do anything to be kicked out because you didn't do anything to get in. You see, He brought you in when He brought you back to life and implanted the faith within you. That's why it's grace. And once you're truly born again, He's going to see to it you persevere. Because, why? Because He wants to show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness in the ages to come. That's in eternity. So He preserves us. He empowers us. He lifts us up. Now, when you go from being dead and disobedient and depraved and doomed to being alive, empowered, exalted, and preserved, how can you not tell other people about it? We have to, don't we? I mean, it just comes out. The last picture we're going to look at is found over in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And this image of becoming a Christian is one of going from knowing about Jesus to having a relationship with Jesus. Now, this is a passage that many of us are familiar with. But the central focus of this passage is relationship. Okay. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door. Now, I believe He's talking about the door of your life. If you want to say door of your heart, that's fine. That represents your innermost life. I stand at the door and knock. When somebody knocks, they knock because they want you to know they're out there, and generally they want to come in. That's why they're knocking. So Jesus comes and knocks on our life's door. Now, he knocks in a lot of different ways. Usually it's through trouble. Through problems. Somebody says he rattles our cage. You know, it could be financial problems, might be health problems, might be marital problems, but he knocks. He gets our attention. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you see, it's not just going through problems, but you've got to realize he's knocking. And he's saying, I want to come in. That's, again, part of that understanding that you didn't have before when God turns on the light. See, all of this is kind of saying the same thing, just in a different image. And you hear the voice of Jesus. He's saying, I want to come in. Now, you may have known about Jesus, but He's never come in so you can know Him personally. But here you say, yes, Jesus, come into my life. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that means, Lord, come in. I want you into my life. He says, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Now, the Hebrews had two different meals that they ate. They only ate two meals a day. They would have the first meal around 11 o'clock in the morning. It would be probably some dried fruit and a piece of hard bread. But then the evening meal, the night meal, was where they really laid out the spread. And they would take time. That was their time to catch up for the day. That was their time to fellowship. That's when they would sit and they would talk and they would eat and they would have a mini-course meal and they would just have a great time. Those of you that have been down to LaGrange at the, at the ancient center down there and had the meal... Kind of no idea what that is. All those courses of meals that come out. 
But that was a time to, to relax and to have fellowship. Now, which word do you think is used in this passage for that piece of bread and dried fruit at 11 o'clock? Or that banquet at 6 or 7 o'clock where the meal was laid out and time was taken to fellowship and to get to know each other? Jesus says, let me come in and fellowship. Let me come in and I will come in and we will dine together. We will spend time together around the meal of fellowship. Jesus says, I want to come in and I want to spend time with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to know me personally. Know of my beauty. Know of my majesty. Know of my glory. Now, when a person actually has a personal relationship with the Lord of the universe, how can we not tell other people about it? How can it not come out? What we see in Scripture is it does come out. Paul is a great example of this. You see, telling others about God and what He's done in our life should be a supernatural outflow of a heart that's filled with Jesus. That's why this test is valid. Look at what happened to Paul. You know Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. He, he hated Christians. And yet, he was walking on the road to Damascus and he met Jesus. He says, And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. That's a picture of him being spiritually brought from blindness to sight. And he got up and he was baptized. And he took food and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying He is the Son of God. Paul couldn't help it. When he met Jesus, he had to tell other people about it. Though he had been a persecutor of the church... Though he knew it would make him look like an idiot and foolish to go from saying he is nobody, we should kill people who worship him to saying he is the Son of God, nevertheless, he did it. He could not contain himself. He was even persecuted because of it. But he did it. Now look at one more example of the Philippian jailer over in Acts 16. You remember Paul and, and, uh, and Silas were in that jail and they were in the dungeon again and, and they were singing and praising God and the other prisoners were listening and all of a sudden God sent an earthquake and it, shaked, it shook so hard that the, the shackles came off people's arms and out of the wall and the, all the doors came open and the jailer who was there woke up and realized what had happened and he was getting ready to kill himself because the punishment for a jailer letting someone escape was death. So he figured with all the doors open, they'd all left. And he was as sure as dead anyway, so he'd go ahead and just kill himself and be done with it. That's where we pick up the story. And he called for lights and he rushed in, that is the jailer. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. Now, wait a minute. 
We went from being in the cell to him saying, what must I do to be saved, to being in his house. What happened? Well, it stands to reason. He knew that the only answer was Jesus. And so he said, hey, wait a minute. Before you tell me everything, let's go. I want to get my family here. I want us to go to my house, and I want you to tell us all about it. So they went to the house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all of those who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized. And he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now this man couldn't help it. He had to tell. He had to tell his family particularly. He knew he'd found the greatest thing there was. And he had to let it be known. And so you see, the 11th test is a valid test. Because when God does the work in our life that He does, in order to bring us to become Christians, it is such a marvelous, fantastic, extraordinary work. We can't help but tell others about it. As we come to the conclusion of this series, I want to take a moment, and I want to let you do some soul searching. I want us to just briefly go over the other tests that we've looked at. And I want you to be honest and let the Holy Spirit be honest with you. And I want you to see if these 11 tests are in your life. At least a glimmer are in your life. If not, I don't want you to leave here thinking you're going to heaven only to find out you're one of those many Jesus talked about on the last day. So if you would, I'm going to ask you to bow your head, close your eyes, and let's just do a little soul searching as I read out these tests. And, and before the Lord, you just answer, yes, there, there's evidence in my life, or no. A person has a desire to walk in the light and in fellowship with God. Do you desire fellowship with God? Do you desire to be obedient to God's commands and to surrender to Christ's Lordship? Number three, do you pursue and realize a personal relationship with God in Christ? Do you really know Him personally and not just know about Him? Number four, is there a consistent struggle for victory over personal sin and Satan? Number five, do you find a growing appreciation of the power and authority of the Word of God in your life? Number six, do you find a growing love for the things which honor God along with a growing contempt for the worldliness which opposes God? Number seven, 
There is a perseverance of the believer in his commitment to the Lordship of Jesus until death. Are you still walking with Jesus? Are you committed to walk with Him until death? Number eight. True followers of Jesus will love one another. Are you harboring any hatred in your heart? Number nine. There is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And number ten. Do you see the reality of answered prayers in your life? Number 11, do you actively confess that Jesus is your Savior and witness of this to others? Father, we do welcome you, and I'm glad that you have taken the opportunity to listen to a sermon on our Internet. And I want you just to know that uh, everybody in the church is not like me. Uh, I have these fellows up here, our leadership team. Uh, This is Filiberto Medina, who is our Hispanic pastor. And our Hispanic congregation meets every Sunday evening at 6.30. This is Paul Kumar. He is our Minister of Community Connections. Uh, And to my left is Mark Baker, who heads up our Reformers Unanimous Ministry, which is a Christian addiction recovery program that meets every Friday night at 7 o'clock. So if you live in the Mableton area, uh, and it doesn't matter what, race you're from, it doesn't matter your cultural background, I want you to know you are welcome at Westside Church. This is where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. Hope you'll join us soon. Thank you for being with us for this message. Each week, Dr. Stewart gives practical applications on ways to live out the Word of God. If you would like more information, please take a moment to view our website at wbcfamily.org. That's wbcfamily.org. Org.